Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie and today is episode 36. The case we're covering today is often referred to as the birth of the celebrity scandal. We're going all the way back to the 1920s and we're going to be in classic Hollywood. Today's episode is all about Fatty Arbuckle. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was in his prime in the summer of 1921. He was paid an extraordinary $3 million over three years by Paramount Pictures to star in 18 silent movies. And he had just agreed to a new million dollar deal with the company, which would be the equivalent to nearly $13 million today. The 266 pound comic was advertised on movie posters as worth his weight in laughs. But before the year was up, he would be charged with an awful crime, and his life would never be the same again. On March 24, 1887, Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle was born in Smith Center, Kansas, and he weighed over 13 pounds at birth. When Roscoe was 8 years old, the Arbuckle family relocated to Santa Ana, California in the Los Angeles vicinity. His classmates there called him Fatty and made fun of his weight giving him a nickname he would carry with him for the rest of his life. A vaudeville team requested him to play with them a few years later while they were touring Santa Ana. Arbuckle enjoyed the cheers and was subsequently and permanently stereotyped as a humorous, endearing, chubby kid. The performer, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, had a long career. When he was a teen, Arbuckle performed in vaudeville shows throughout the West Coast. At age 26, when Arbuckle joined Max Sennett's Keystone Film Company and became one of the Keystone Cops, he'd finally made it big. Arbuckle weighed in at between 250 and 30 pounds, and his weight was a key element of his comedy. He would hurl pies, but could move beautifully and fall over in a funny way. Fast forward, the party to end all parties was going to be held at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco on September 5th, 1921, thrown by Arbuckle's friend, Fred Fishbaugh. Arbuckle, whose most recent movie, Crazy to Marry, was a big splash across the country, and he was the honoree of this party. It's now over a century ago that Roscoe Arbuckle would travel to San Francisco for a weekend of partying in his plum-colored Piercero on the Saturday before Labor Day. By September 1921, he had acted in over 150 pictures and was making a million dollars a year at Paramount. He was frequently seen wearing his signature ensemble of baggy trousers, suspenders, and an oversized bowler hat. He had a 20-room estate in Los Angeles, complete with servants, oriental rugs, gold-leaf bathtubs, and a booze cellar that he would open for jazz-themed parties. His array of prize automobiles included the Pierce Arrow, a $34,000 gasoline palace. According to Shulman for The New Yorker, Arbuckle stayed at the St. Francis in San Francisco, an opulent European-style hotel with a private orchestra and Turkish baths. He spread out into three adjacent rooms on the top floor with his crew. A shipment of gin and scotch was delivered that evening from Gobi's Grill, 20 months into Prohibition. 
but finding alcohol was easy if you were Fatty Arbuckle. Ira Fortluce, a gown salesman, was leaving the neighboring Palace Hotel late on Monday, September 5, 1921, to meet one of Arbuckle's acquaintances. He noticed a different LA-based group in the Palace foyer and asked a porter about the stylish young woman with black hair. The porter identified her as Virginia Rappe, the movie actress. Rappe was invited to join them for drinks in the afternoon because Arbuckle's group knew her. On September 5th, the celebration got underway early. In spite of the fact that it was prohibition, liquor was flowing. Arbuckle welcomed guests while still wearing his pajamas. Arbuckle was a man at the top, and Rappe was a rising star. Over the past century, there's been significant debate over the events that would alter this status quo, resulting in Rappe's death and Arbuckle's shunning. Rappe drank orange blossoms while chatting with Arbuckle. Rappe's pals had also come to the party, and she would eventually proceed to use the restroom in room 1221. But Delmont and Lowell Sherman, an actor friend of Arbuckle's, were already there. She would then enter room 1219, Arbuckle's room. Arbuckle entered the room just before 3 o'clock and closed the door. According to one version of the narrative, Arbuckle threw Rappay into the bed before crushing her with his weight. In another, he discovered her unwell and treated her with respect. Depending on who you ask, they were alone together for either 10 minutes or an hour. According to King for SmithsonianMag.com, the police were informed by Maude Delmont that after Arbuckle and Rappay had shared a few drinks, the actress was brought into a nearby room and told, I've waited for you five years, and now I've got you. Delmont heard Rappay screaming after about a half hour, so she banged on the locked door before kicking it in. After some time, Arbuckle appeared at the door in his pajamas with Rappay's cap cocked at an angle and his foolish screen smile. Rappay was writhing on the bed behind him and screaming. Arbuckle said that he opened the door voluntarily. Regardless, Rappay was barely alert, ripping at her garments in distress and complaining of a severe abdominal discomfort as the other partygoers entered room 1219. After moving her to another room down the corridor and giving her a cold bath, a hotel doctor concluded that she had just had too much alcohol. The celebration went on, and Rappay remained in the hotel room for three days, while being given morphine to ease her discomfort, before eventually being moved to a sanitarium. It's a frustrating enigma as to why she wasn't moved sooner. She died the next day, on Friday, September 9th, and Arbuckle was taken into custody on Saturday for murder. Less is known about Virginia Rappay's life than someone like Fatty Arbuckle. She started modeling at the age of 16, participating in department store fashion displays. She was born in Chicago in 1891 and altered her last name to Rappay rather than the normal pronunciation of rap. She would relocate to Los Angeles in 1916, joining a sea of naive women aspiring to succeed Mary Pickford as an actress. She had a vampy role in the now lost film Paradise Garden and would date Henry Learman for two and a half years before his production company failed. 
Rapay was 30 years old by the summer of 1921, and her numerous careers had peaked. Only after she died, when copies of Arbuckle's films were being made, did her name start to become a marquee attraction. Again, according to King for SmithsonianMag.com, the Fatty Arbuckle scandal would sell more newspapers than the sinking of the Lusitania, according to the publisher of the Hearst Papers, who had a field day with the subject. The San Francisco Examiner would publish an editorial cartoon titled, They Walked Into His Parlor, depicting Arbuckle in the middle of a huge spider web with two spirit bottles at his side and seven women caught in the web. The papers speculated that the 266-pound star had ruptured Virginia Rapay's bladder while sexually assaulting her. He was accused of engaging in sexual perversions, according to rumors. The story gave the media a free pass to blame Arbuckle for his hedonistic lifestyle, which was a break from how aristocracy from the silver screen had previously been covered. Hollywood had typically been portrayed as a feat Arbuckle personified that stereotype, frolicking around his opulent estate while being attended to by a bevy of servants and driving a collection of flashy cars. But Arbuckle would surrender and spend the next three weeks behind bars. He didn't say anything as the insinuations increased. Arbuckle's solicitors argued that he was innocent and urged the public to reserve judgment until all the facts were known. However, they soon realized that Arbuckle would need to make a statement, and the comedian shared a narrative that was extremely different from that of the witness, Maude Delmont. Arbuckle claimed that Virginia Rapay became hysterical after a few drinks. She complained she couldn't breathe and then started ripping off her clothes. Arbuckle asserted that he was never by himself with her and claimed to have witnesses to back this up. He discovered Rapay throwing up in his bathroom and he and a few other guests attempted to revive her from what they thought was intoxication, and then they eventually managed to get her to a private space where she could recuperate. William Olfus, a doctor who examined her body shortly after she died, found multiple bruises on her right arm and thighs, but no signs of sexual assault. He discovered a hole in her bladder's outer wall that was an eighth of an inch wide after cutting into her abdomen bladder rupture that was partially caused by acute peritonitis was the cause of death. The bladder had killed her, according to a second autopsy conducted that evening by Dr. Shelby Strange. But what caused it to rupture? Dr. Strange had his suspicions about some kind of external force. Manslaughter charges were brought against Arbuckle, and his trial date was set for November. Matthew Brady, the district attorney for San Francisco, saw the case as his ideal chance to launch his political career, but he was having issues with Delmont, his key witness. She alternated between claiming to be Rapay's long-standing friend and insisting that they had only recently become friends before the party. Brady then realized Delmont had a criminal history involving fraud and extortion, Again, according to King for SmithsonianMag.com, Delmont, who was also known as Madame Black, arranged young women for parties where the wealthy male attendees quickly became accused of rape and were then coerced into paying Delmont. Next, there was the issue of the telegrams she sent to lawyers in San Diego and Los Angeles. Each reading, 
Quote, we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make some money out of him. Still, Brady continued with the trial. However, Repay had a chronic bladder issue, according to medical records presented by Arbuckle's attorneys. And an autopsy report stated that there were no marks of violence on the body and no signs that the girl had been attacked in any way. Repay allegedly told the hotel doctor who treated her that Arbuckle did not attempt to sexually assault her, but the prosecutor was successful in having that claim rejected as hearsay. Arbuckle testified in his own defense, and the jury deadlocked with a vote to acquit him 10 to 2. The jury again reached a deadlock when the prosecution tried Arbuckle for a second time. The witnesses who knew Repay were not called to the stand by Arbuckle's solicitors until the third trial, which took place in March 1922. Arbuckle was left with little choice because his finances had run out. He would spend more than $700,000 on his defense, and his career was likely over. People who knew Repay would claim on the stand that she had previously experienced stomach issues, was promiscuous, had an illegitimate daughter, drank heavily, and would frequently strip at gatherings. After only five minutes of deliberation on April 12, 1922, the jury would find Arbuckle not guilty of manslaughter. And of those five minutes of deliberation, four were utilized to compose a statement. And that statement read, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. There was not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story, which we all believe. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. It is interesting to note, though, that the controversy did also spark a wave of protest and hundreds of women, many wearing their Sunday best, would attend Arbuckle's preliminary hearings to demonstrate their support for Repay. And the scene of women protesting abuse was unprecedented for the time and would remind people of the current rise of the Me Too movement. Shulman for The New Yorker reports that one reporter recalled that Arbuckle was very bitter over what he believed was injustice, which financially and professionally ruined him. I had never seen a more hopeless man, he reported. He drank. He had incurred debt due to legal bills. He did resume his vaudeville career despite occasional opposition to his performances and was hired by Buster Keaton in 1924 as a co-director for the movie Sherlock Jr. But Keaton would fire Arbuckle after only three weeks because of his erratic behavior. But over time, Arbuckle would establish a reliable career in directing using the name William Godrich, the first and middle name of his father. Arbuckle also purchased the Plantation Cafe, a nightclub in Culver City in the late 1920s. For a while, his famous pals congregated there to express their support. However, it would shut down following the stock market crash. After an 11-year exile, Warner Brothers rehired him to star in three comedy short films. Because of how uncontroversial they were, the company planned eight additional fatty shorts and even looked into making a movie. 
Arbuckle and his third wife were celebrating their anniversary and his impending return in Manhattan in June 1933. He went to sleep that night at the Park Central Hotel, but would pass away from a heart attack in his sleep at the age of 46. A century later, determining Arbuckle's guilt is more difficult than tracing the history of his mythology. Arbuckle might not have committed manslaughter. Furthermore, it's unlikely that he was the root of Rapé's bladder rupture or even her death. That there could have been some form of sexual violence or an unwanted sexual advance behind the locked door at the St. Francis Hotel. We'll never know with certainty because both participants are now dead. There have been multiple books written about Arbuckle, but none specifically about Rapé. And sure, this is partly due to the fact that she passed away earlier than Arbuckle and she was just less well-known. However, it's worth asking why this story is essentially told as the story of a man who lost his career when it actually began with a woman losing her life. Rapay should be remembered properly now more than ever. Rapay, who was born in Chicago in 1891, was both a political activist and ambitious actress and model. She was one of the first women to earn a living in what was then a brand new industry. She gained notoriety during World War I for her peace hat, which had wings like a dove. According to Balot for the Cut.com, Rapay told the Reno Evening Gazette, we should express our peace sentiments in our clothes. If we believe in peace, why wear military jackets and soldier caps? Clothes influence our mind. Rapay would also wear tuxedos while posing for a photo for an article advocating for women to have equal clothes rights with men which is another example of her faith in the power of fashion. But the legacy that Fatty Arbuckle left behind would also have a profound impact on film comedy that endures to this day. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle helped launch the careers of many other silent film legends, and he even overcame the first widely reported celebrity scandal, making him a legendary figure in Hollywood history. That brings us to the end of this episode. And we hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod. Or you can send us an email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.